Hello again and welcome to Kendra's Real Dirt Gardening 2.0 and we certainly have a favorite subject today, tomatoes. And it's 2.0 so we're going to talk about some of the somewhat more esoteric aspects of growing tomatoes and growing heirloom tomatoes with our expert guest today. Who better to talk about America's favorite vegetable garden product than the Tomato Man? That's Craig LaHoulier's email address. Craig is the tomato advisor to Seed Savers Exchange, and he gardens and collects the seeds of favorites in North Carolina. Like all seed savers, he has a special interest in family heirlooms, but a few hybrids slipped into his list of favorites, too. His new book is Epic Tomatoes, How to Select and Grow the Best Varieties of All Time, and I'm happy to welcome Craig LaHoulier to Kendrew's Real Dirt. Hello, Ken, and thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you today. Well, thank you. Thank you for this really, I was going to say adorable book. It has, <laughs> has an adorable cover, but inside it's everything I ever wanted to know about tomatoes and then about 100 pages more. I guess one of the things that always gets me is I, I love reading the stories behind every plant, and tomatoes have such a thrilling history. Uh, compared to many of the fruits and vegetables that we grow, tomatoes are relatively new, and their their roots are in South America, as you write, uh, where they were not much larger than a pea. Exactly right. They were, uh, and I I actually have a tomato that uh, was sent to me by someone in California named Mexico Midget that probably is very very much like what those very first tomatoes growing in the coast of South America would have looked like uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It's it's interesting when you trace back the history and some of the names because you run quite quickly into into the fact. And I think you alluded to this. Um, we've really if we've been eating potatoes for for ten thousand years and onions for seven thousand years, tomatoes as we know them, um, and you know through the unfortunate occurrence where Cortez you know did his thing and yeah. and and brought the tomato back to Spain, but that's that's only about five hundred years, and the real active improvements to tomato only for for three hundred years. So. My feeling, even in researching the book and looking through such great resources as Andrew Smith's book, there's still lots we don't know, and there may be, unfortunately, lots that we never know, for example, about exactly how that little wild two-cell pea-type tomato actually did make it into Mexico. What, you know, was it, a, was it bird droppings, or, <laughs> or, or did snuck in and, you know, and somebody popped a few berries into their backpack and and traveled up and dropped them into the soil. But, um, well, I always think about the uh, plants that are considered poisonous, and I know that the leaves of tomato, yeah. I don't think they're going to they're gonna kill you, but they might make you have a, a, a stomach ache. Yeah. But I, I wonder, who is the person who they always would test these things on, you know? <laughs> oh, I know, exactly. Well, one of the great anecdotes was uh, that early on, one of the many factors that went into um, – this label of poison on tomatoes was that uh, they were they were cooked for summer oil and the the cook got confused. It didn't cook the tomatoes, but cooked the greens and mm. served it to this uh, this prince or king, and they get quite ill. And the thought was um, that tomatoes are poisonous. You know the relation to the nightshade family um, and a few of the stories I came upon. Uh, 
to kind of lead to why they might have been viewed as poisonous is because the foliage just smells so bad. Um, I actually love the smell of tomato foliage, and I know you're a plant guy, and I think plant people, I'm not sure if we ever dislike the smells of foliage of any plants. We just appreciate them for the uniqueness that they carry. But nothing makes me happier than going out in the garden and brushing up against tomato plants, and then nothing makes my wife more frustrated than realizing that all of those yellow stains on my T-shirts will never, ever, ever come out. <laughs> well, so I, have, I have this collection of tomato T-shirts that is huge in my gardening drawer, and I just always have to remember to, to grab the tomato shirt when I'm going out to uh, commune with my plants, shall we say. I think that this may be a unique story, <laughs> certainly something I've never heard before. But let's zoom to America in the mid-1800s. Uh, I know that you're very into the the American history of tomatoes, tomato growing, and all those seed catalogs and all those different... I know you in your book you have like the top 10 tomatoes. So how did we end up with a thousand tomatoes? <laughs> A thousand. I mean, in, so in the Seed Savers Exchange, when I, when I first discovered uh, that the brilliant invention of the Seed Savers Exchange that Kent and Diane really launched in 1975, um, the, the collection of tomatoes in that organization's yearbook now number greater than 10,000. So, 10,000. Yeah, So there, but there's a few interesting things to think about here. Um, how a lot of tomatoes, it, to get back to your original question, how did we get to this number of tomatoes from maybe the dozens or 50 or so that were probably offered by seed catalogs in the mid-1800s? And it's so, so there's a, this is a multi-level story. And think about what happens today when you look at certain seed catalogs where you, you look at it and you go, mm, that variety sounds very similar to this variety in this catalog. Um, so some companies were maybe growing seed out, seeing something vaguely different, or maybe it was only in their imagination. But they gave it a different name and they sold it as well. So from from the time, well, I want to go back just a teeny bit. Mm -hmm. A lot of people want to know what Thomas Jefferson grew in his garden at Monticello. And the unfortunate thing is that a lot of the tomatoes coming over from Europe had the really fascinating names called yellow. <laughs> um, red. Um, and maybe this won't be surprising, but it seemed to be when American entrepreneurialism um, thought that we could advertise these and see catalogs and give them fanciful names, um, then we can start putting great names. And that all culminated, of course, in Big Boy, Better Boy, Best Boy, Humongous Boy, you know, mm -hmm. uh, these names that really capture the fancy. So. Uh, so a lot, some of the ways that tomatoes proliferated in number were just selections and names, and many people who did research on these varieties in the late 1800s were under the impression these really even weren't different varieties. They were just given different names. The well, way that a lot of varieties came... Oh, sorry, Ken, go ahead. Oh, that's okay. I just wanted to remind people that I'm speaking with Craig Lahoulier, and he is the author of a new book, Epic Tomatoes, How to Select and Grow the Best Varieties of All Time. And maybe I'll jump in a little bit here because you mentioned all those boys. Yes. And uh, we, we could talk about cultivating tomatoes a little bit. I, I have a very short season here in the northwest corner of New Jersey, and I've not had, I've had virtually, well, actually, no success growing heirlooms, and the two tomatoes that have done well for me, only two, 
are uh, Sun Gold, which is just about my favorite tomato, and I dare I say foolproof, and Burpee's Brandy Boy. And I know those are both hybrids, but uh, maybe you can help me out because I've tried the Black Russians, I've tried Brandy Wine, and my season's just too short. Yeah, how many days of, um, so I'm looking at Sun Gold and I'm thinking that's about a 50, 60 days to maturity. The other question I would ask is uh, how many hours of sun exposure you have, because that is one of the biggest um, determinants on whether you're going to get to write through or just, yeah. you know, eight foot vines. Well, but, yeah. my uh, my garden's mostly shady and I do grow mm -hmm. my tomatoes on the driveway and you even yes. relate to that. You talk <laughs> about that in the book. Yeah. Uh, this year we had a cool, a wonderful summer for humans and not so great for tomatoes, but this year I had them in a south facing against the yes. south facing wall. <laughs> yes. But it was a cool year and yeah. I I grew about seven different tomato varieties and I didn't grow brandy boy this year. I wanted to be more adventuresome. Oh. And I did grow sun gold and that was fine and I think I had probably five tomatoes from all my other ones and wow. the the one with black leaves I was so excited about not a single fruit. Yeah. And uh, we won't talk about chipmunks, but <laughs> not yet. Uh, but I'm not sure where to go here, except that short season, short plant. That's what I want. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so I can help you in, in so many ways. And I can, I can help gardeners in so many ways. And I'll just briefly mention that we started back in 2006, uh, mostly at the prompting of questions from my seedling customers uh, I love Cherokee Purple, but I don't know what to do with 10-foot vines. Mm. Uh, what do you have for me? So a friend in Australia and I came up with doing some crosses with some of the known. Uh, it's a very rare class of plants called dwarfs that grow only about three or four feet tall. They were only maybe half a dozen or less known up until we started our work in 2006, but they became parents. And we now, uh, through the volunteer work of about 250 people around the world, uh, none of us get a penny from this. We do it because we love it. We're learning genetics. It's fun. We now have 36 great varieties that all grow three or four feet tall. Some of them have 16-ounce tomatoes. We have them in orange and purple and brown and green and white. The flavors are as good as the best of the tall-growing indeterminate type. So what we can do is ensure, um, maybe in a link uh, off this podcast, Ken, is, is that people know about these tomatoes and know which, where to get some of them, because uh, that would certainly be something that you'd, you'd love. Um, I also think what I've found in my driveway growing is black pots are very, very important to get plants off. To, and I use black plastic grow bags, actually, of about five gallon. Draws the heat of the sun in early on. Use the biggest transplants you can get. Um, whether it's starting a little bit early. Um, but I think we can get you some. Where you are in New Jersey, you should be able to have luck. It's, it's just that each variety of tomato has a particular personality and how it relates to your local climate on whether it's happy or not, meaning will it fruit well or not. So we'll just have a little discussion on the side, you and I. Um, before the show, I actually made a, a list of about 60 varieties that I took from my list of 250 at the back of my book that I think would uh, would make you very happy. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I do want to tell people that there will be links to learn more at kendrews.com. So you're, I don't know how, you know, we've talked about hybrids, but I don't know how you got your list down to 
your top favorites. And, and in the book, do you have top 10 favorites? Yes. Yes. Um, well, so that, you know, there are people with different types of personalities in life, of course, and none of them are better for worse. We're just all different. And I guess I, through Myers-Briggs or other things that I've taken in the past, I'm, I'm kind of what they call a seeker, meaning, so if I try Ben and Jerry's vanilla ice cream, and I love it. I won't say that's all I'm going to eat. I'll say, okay, but Ben and Jerry's or Hagen dazs or whatever have a hundred other flavors. I'm going to try them all. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of the same way when it comes to um, everything. Um, there's always going to be something better out there. So one of the reasons I've grown about, I'd say by this time, 2,000 types of tomatoes. I'm always seeking better stories, more delicious tomatoes, more interesting shapes, sizes, and colors. But then through those 30 years or so I've been doing this, there have been varieties that have risen above uh, the parapet. And consistently year after year, they either knock my socks off or my wife's socks off with their ex excellent flavor or just the unique beauty of them or their productivity. That is the difficult standard that led to those 10 favorites. Um, absolute integral nature to leading me into tomatoes or... Uh, incomparable flavor that makes them an, an absolute must to grow. Well, you said flavor, beauty, flavor. and productivity. So those are our three things, flavor, productivity, and beauty, the way they yes. look. And on your list, you have, for example, Green Giant. Tell me a little bit about Green Giant. Well, aside from the fact that you're a mind reader, because I was just getting ready to tell you about Green Giant, um, so a fellow named Reinhard Kraft, who's a, a German tomato collector, sent me seeds about six years ago. And the reason I asked him for the seeds is I noticed on his website he had a picture of this. It looked like a one-pound green tomato, so it stayed green when it's ripe, but it had potato leaf foliage. That was, we didn't know of any of those before, and potato leaf foliage means the edges are smooth. So he sent me some seed, and I grew it, and these tomatoes did not look extraordinary. They, were, they stayed green. When we tasted it, we couldn't, I mean, very little rival sun gold for tomato flavor. Green Giant was it. Um, my friend Lee then took two of my fruit to a tomato tasting in Cincinnati, and it won first prize. Every year I grow it, um, it is the tomato that has converted my seedling customers to dipping their toe in the water of tomatoes that stay green when ripe, because there's lots of anxiety there. How, how do I know when it's ripe? How do I know when to pick it? And... and Anybody who tries Green Giant is just blown away. It's relatively early. It ripens in 70 days. It's a very vigorous, high-yielding uh, plant. And it seems to have its origin, which isn't surprising, a natural cross or a mutation from Lillian's Yellow Heirloom. And it does have that same flavor and internal solidity and juiciness of Lillian's. Um, Lillian's is a very late tomato. It comes on in about 90 days, but it is my yellow, can't live without um, Green Giant is, is worth trying. It's becoming quite widely distributed now among seed catalogs. So uh, the word has spread. Well, when you mentioned Sun Gold, I, uh, to me, what I, how I would describe that is low acid. It's <clears throat> it's a it's very sweet and yes. uh, almost candy like. But I really like it. I shouldn't say candy in a bad way. Uh, oh. I mean, the flavor is not boring. It's interesting. Uh, but I do like that kind of sweetness. And, yes. uh, and if Green Giant's like that, that sounds really good. It, it knocks your socks off. And, and what I find fascinating about Sun Gold is I call it my multi-use tomato because if I pick it in that slightly – it's not deep orange yet. It's still mm -hmm. a slightly yellowish tint. 
it has that tart, tart bite to it. And right. it, it works very well, we find, in uh, we'll just cut them in half, marinate them in olive oil with some basil and red pepper flakes, and pour it raw. Uh, overcooked pasta that makes incredibly good taste. Oh, and we should mention it's a it's a cherry tomato. It's a cherry tomato. Um, if you let them get medium orange, um, they they start taking on that candy-like quality, and they can be used many many different ways. If they go deep orange, you have to, as you know, they really will tend to split because right. if you have all these sun golds on your vine, and it's a very very prolific plant, and it's going to rain, my suggestion is always pick them before the rain because they'll all pop, and that's fine, except the fruit flies and ants will find them once they pop. And you're, you're kind of in competition now with the critters in terms of the quality. Um, well, how many tomatoes did you say you grow on average well, every year? So each year, um, I, I look upon my garden as my, my laboratory. And again, I think we've, we spoke before the show, Ken, uh, through email about my – so I'm a Ph.D. chemist. I, I look at my garden as my laboratory, except playing in my garden lab is a heck of a lot more fun than when I played in my – chemistry laboratory because uh, it's history and it's food. Uh -huh. But I try to, I try to have um, multiple projects going on at one time. Uh, I like to do control projects, so only change one thing and see what things do. But I average about 150 varieties a year. I've gone as big as 300. But since 1986, um, I'd say I've tried 2,000, 2,500. Um, I've lost count. And there are bad tomatoes. It, it's, I'm not one of those people that, because it's a tomato, it's wonderful. I call them spitters, and people who have attended tastings with me have noticed um, me bend over and rather unceremonious, unceremoniously um, get rid of the piece of tomato because it was awful. Mm. <laughs> um, which brings up one more interesting point. Um, tomato, we, anybody... Um, who, does, who loves food probably knows this, but we all perceive flavors differently as unique individuals. And one person's sweet tomato could very well be another person's tart tomato. Uh, you remember we, we, we spoke about a tomato having a different personality in terms of how it will bear in your garden. Well, a tomato's personality can vary season to season in terms of its flavor, productivity, flavor characteristics. So... I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in never saying a tomato is awful after just one trial. It could be the weather, the pot it was grown in, the sun that year. Um, I don't usually let a tomato have more than two chances to impress me, though. <laughs> oh, it doesn't get three strikes. It's out after two. Huh? Well, what do you do? I mean, I've got like thousands more than I, I can fit in every year, so I have to be... I'm not a tough person, but I do get tough when it comes to tomatoes. Yeah. So, so now, are you saving seeds from these tomatoes, too? I am saving seed, and I know people will be concerned about um, cross-pollinating. Right. And what, what I'm doing to minimize that, uh, first we recognize that tomatoes are um, perfect flowered. You've got male and female in the flower, meaning when all goes well, a flower will pollinate as it opens. The, the flower opens, the stamens brush against the style, everything happens. If bees are prevalent into your garden, they can get into flowers. Um, before they self-pollinate. So what I do is if I watch the bee population in my garden and get in there early, so typically the first sets of fruits on a plant low down, you've got other things happening in the yard, the bees aren't really out yet, I'm getting greater than 99% seed purity, even growing plants pretty much right next to each other. You can also do the same thing late in the season because the bees tend to drop off and lose interest in tomatoes. Um, 
a lot of people will say, well, you need to separate your plants by 20 or 30 feet, but it may take you and I a while to jog those 20 or 30 feet, but think of how fast a bee could make it. Mm. Um, so I tend to go by noticing when the bees are busy, and if you're really concerned and want to be a seed saver, you can just take some floating row cover or a remay, a very light material, and just fashion a little bag around your um, blossom cluster. Let the plant, let the flowers open and the plants pollinate in the tomatoes farm. Mark that, and then you'll know that all of the seeds on that cluster will be um, pure for seed saving. So there's a couple of different ways to be able to plant lots of plants in your garden and to still be um, uh, a very quality conscious seed saver. Well, I guess we should say a little bit more about that, that heirlooms are strains uh, that are generally grown in isolation because you don't want to create hybrids by having those bees in and mix the pollen from different plants. You want to try to preserve the variety yeah. that you hope to get. Yes. And that's why you're thwarting mother nature <laughs> yes. intervening I, i'll say that uh, and so you might just uh, harvest the seed from one fruit perhaps or one that's low down or one late yeah. season one that develops or one that you wrap the entire flower cluster right. in yep. a bag when you know you can make it out of uh, gauze or sure. uh, cheesecloth or something like that it's yeah. not that hard no no and that's really what makes a Cherokee purple a Cherokee purple or, or a green giant or green giant is that it is a variety that has through years of um, either being grown in isolation or being uh, collected from uncrossed seed. It, it has developed a, a stable set of genes that expresses themselves pretty much the same every year. Um, so now this actually circles back nicely to something you mentioned early on. How do we get all of these varieties? So. You, you think about the country way back in the 1800s and people coming in from Europe and growing varieties in, the, in their farms around the country with a lot of, not a lot of communication between. So maybe somebody brought over variety X, let's call it Lily's favorite. They grew it for a while, forgot where they got it from, and it became Johnny's favorite. Well, <laughs> the people that have Lily's favorite still have it, but now you've got a new tomato that's exactly the same called Johnny's favorite. Both of those end up in the Seed Savers Exchange. Do we have one tomato or two? My feeling is this is replicated often, um, which is one of the things that's led the pro to the proliferation of varieties. The other thing is that in people's yards, the bees are buzzing. Mm. So where did, where did all of these colors come from? And my feeling is they've come from chance mutations through the years and crosses through the years. Gardeners here and there have located them, grown them to stability. So no seed company back in the 18, early 1900s ever released a green or a purple or a brown or, um, or even more than maybe one of the striped or bicolored tomatoes. Those have all just come about because people essentially acted as amateur breeders, even though they didn't realize it, in concert with the bees. Saved those seeds through the years. And that really led to a vast increase in the diversity of the colors and shapes and sizes of tomatoes. So in a way, America, since the mid-1800s, has been, and seed savers and farmers, have been doing a form of amateur plant breeding as they've brought all of these unique varieties that they've loved so much so that we can now grow them and share them ourselves. Wow. Well, if you'd like to learn more about Green Giant or Lucky Cross or Cherokee Purple or Lillian's Yellow or Rosella Purple or Sweet Sue or Summertime Green, 
you can uh, go to the kendrews.com website and i'll have a link to craig lahulier's own blog and you can learn about more more about tomatoes and and just about everything you'd ever want to know on selecting and growing the best varieties of all time. And Craig, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. It is absolutely my pleasure, Ken. Um, uh, thank you very much. And everyone, grow great tomatoes and uh, just have, have some fun gardens this year. Well, it's happened to me again. Now I'm all supercharged to grow tomatoes, even though I had a pretty bad year this last year. But I'm sure uh, one thing is that the weather is always different. It was a cool summer this year in 2014, and it's going to be an extra hot summer next year. So I may not like it, but I'm sure that the tomatoes will. Join me again next week for another edition of Ken Drew's Real Dirt. See you then.